You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 559 of this podcast. Today is Wednesday, February 15th, 2023, and in this episode, we're going to talk a bit about The Gray Champion by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Also, why was King Charles I executed? Also, a little bit, not a whole lot, but a little bit about Oliver Cromwell and what to make of these things all together. <laughs> In relation to where we find ourselves now, in relation to the present, in my view, a word or two about a philosophy of history, <laughs> in my view, philosophy is not a good in and of itself unless it is truly wise. And I think the scriptures bear this out, that there are two kinds of wisdom. There's godly wisdom and there's worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom is, I would argue, about let's just get all we can, can all we get, sit on the can. That's how you know that you've won. And it can take different forms. For those who are motivated by money, first and foremost, the more money they have, higher up on the Forbes, wealthiest people, richest people in the world list they are, the more they know that they are actually winning at life. That's what drives them. For some people, it's how popular they are. It's how many people like them. It's how many people know their name, how famous they are. The more people know who they are and remember them for whatever reason, even for bad reasons, the more that they know that they are winning at life. Other people, it's power. Money is just a means to the end of getting power. Fame is just a means to the end of getting power. And they like to have power. They like to be able to tell people what to do. And if they can tell people what to do, well then, hey, life is good. If they can't tell people what to do, or if people won't listen to them, if people won't obey when they tell them what to do, well then they're not doing it right. Because that's what life is all about. It's about having a title and having people kowtow and having people do what they say when they tell them to. For still other people, I think that knowing things is their drug of choice. Knowing things is how they know that life is purposeful. If they don't know things, or if there are things that they are not able to know, it really, really bothers them. And the more that they know relative other people, if they know more than anybody else that they know, well, then they know that they have a good life. And to that end, I think there is something to contrasting worldly wisdom with godly wisdom. Godly wisdom will give us life everlasting. It'll give us a good life here and now, but it'll redefine what we think of as being a good life here and now in perspective of eternal life. And if we lose the plot there, then we might also fail to appreciate why we should be reading God's word, why we should be studying it, how we should be handling the word of truth. Study to show yourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, Paul writes to Timothy. And I think what that means is, among other things, 
Don't be like the Pharisees in how you study, how you apply what it is that you know. You're not playing gotcha games. You're not studying so that you can catch other people off guard and humiliate them and embarrass them. History is full of people, full of very intelligent, very clever, very articulate tricksters who just pounced anytime somebody said something that was even slightly incorrect from a technical standpoint. And that's not what we're called to. The Pharisees do that with Jesus, and it's tragic for them. It's dangerous for the people who are listening, but it's tragic for them that they are just pouncing on any little thing and even trying to set it up so that Jesus will say something that he shouldn't say, and they can humiliate him so that they can take away other people's respect for what Jesus is teaching and what he's saying and ultimately who he is. But we're not supposed to be that way. And here's where I think if I'm going to tell you about The Great Champion, a short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne, or why King Charles I was executed, or his dad, King James IV and I, if I'm going to tell you about Oliver Cromwell, it really does need to come back to the present and it needs to relate in some sense to eternity in order to count as godly wisdom. So that's what I'm setting out to do. Hopefully I'm doing it better and better. I don't claim to do it perfectly, but I'm going to press on and I'm going to hopefully benefit you in the process as we practice applying history and yes, even philosophy and politics and science (laughs) and personal life and economics, all of the above in such a way as to take every thought captive for Christ. Because if we do that, if we take every thought captive for Christ, it's no benefit to Christ per se, as though we're adding something, we're giving him something that isn't already his due, but it's a realignment of our priorities so that we will have a blessed life, so that we will have peace with God first and foremost, and to the greatest extent possible with one another as well, which is a good thing. That's what we want. But before we get into those more historical topics and features, I've got a few items in the news that I want to just touch on briefly, some current events items. One being that Nikki Haley has just declared her candidacy for the presidency. Hank Berrien reports for the Daily Wire as of yesterday that the former governor of South Carolina and one-time UN ambassador announced on Tuesday she is seeking the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Now, I could say a word or two about how I don't think it's a good idea for women to rule over us. I could say a word or two about that. I have said a word or two about that in the past. It, It is actually a sign of a culture and a nation and a people being under judgment or being in a very bad way when women rule over you and infants are your oppressors. It's not something to brag about down through the generations, down through the ages. But I'm not going to get into that at the moment. I will say that from what I've heard, from what I've seen of Nikki Haley's engagement in public life as a public servant, I do think that she's done a good job. I have heard good things. I have seen good things in her engagement in public 
in public life as a public servant. And I don't know if she's the right person for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. I am inclined to say no. I don't think she is. But we'll see, right? It, it's interesting that she has thrown her hat in the ring. It certainly seems as though Ron DeSantis is going to as well. Obviously, we know Trump is running. And I'm curious to see what kind of debates these characters will have. And I hope to see those debates. I, I hope that there are debates about what would be best for the country. Because here's the thing. Even when somebody doesn't win the nomination and they don't become president, they're still influencing the public discourse. They're still influencing what we even perceive as being something that needs to be attended to. And that can be a very good thing. Even a long shot candidacy that has little to no chance of winning and they can't all win. So, you know, some of these, whether we realize it or not, are long shots with no chance, little to no chance of winning because they're not all going to be president. But even when that's the case, it's still to our benefit to tune into the debates because those debates will engage our critical thinking. They're also engaging one another. When they're up on the debate stage, they're engaging one another in critical thinking, hopefully. And if they're not, well, then <clears throat> that also is a sign that we as a people are under judgment. If we can't debate, if we refuse to debate, then where does that leave us? Everybody doing what's right in their own eyes, like the book of Judges. Read that one again. Do yourself a favor. Freshen up on your recollection of the book of Judges because some pretty messed up stuff happens in the book of Judges that is not uh, preferable. It's, it's, not, it's not where we want to be, I would say. But if we can cultivate an ability to debate, and if the debate can be substantive and not just personal attacks back and forth and calling each other you know, meatball Ron, which is apparently reportedly uh, reportedly, I saw one report at not to be yesterday. That is Trump's new nickname for Ron DeSantis that he's trying out. He's going to try that instead of Ron Sanctimonious, Ron DeSanctimonious or whatever dumb thing. If he's going to be called uh, Meatball Ron or some new moniker, uh, you know, that's not that is not ideal to say the least. We, we, we've got to be better than that. Come on. Nikki Haley, if memory serves, did have a good relationship with Trump. I don't remember him saying ill of her. In fact, he's the one that nominated her to be the UN ambassador to the United Nations. Ambassador uh, from 2017. She did a good job. And if memory serves... He said she did a good job. This is another advantage that Ron DeSantis has where it puts Trump in a bit of a tough spot and it's going to have to force some <laughs> more substance, right? He's going to have to actually run on the merits of his ideas and the strength of his arguments if he's running against people that he formerly, you know, put in positions of greater authority and greater responsibility and didn't have anything bad to say about them until they were competing for the top spot for president of the United States. It's a bad look if he was talking well of them, speaking well of them, speaking highly of them, praising them right up until the very moment that he saw them as a threat. And then all of a sudden 
He started trying to destroy them. It it says a lot about his character if that's where he's willing to go. And I would say it helps to clarify whether or not he should be the nominee, whether he should be president in 2024, if he's the kind who is going to turn on anybody who might run against him for the presidency. But moving on, in other news, I just got a notification from the Wall Street Journal that Scottish leader Nicola Sturgeon has resigned. The move comes after a recent slump in support and controversy over an initiative to expand transgender rights. The Wall Street Journal article reads, Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon on Wednesday said she would resign, saying that staying on might do more harm than good for the cause of independence from the rest of the UK. Now, this is an interesting thing to me, because as somebody who descends from Scots on my mother's mother's side, I am fascinated by the story of the Scottish people, particularly right around that time when the Acts of Union came into effect in the first place, creating what we now know of as the United Kingdom. I'm fascinated by that whole bit because from what I've read, it was a lot of nobles in Scottish Parliament being paid off and bribed to go along with what was really not a popular decision. It wasn't in the best interest of the people of Scotland as the people of Scotland saw it. Now, there's a great book. Actually, I'm looking at it right now on my shelf called How the Scots Invented the Modern World, which makes a compelling case for how it was in the best interest of the Scottish people that they became one kingdom with England and Wales and Ireland. It was in their best interest that they joined the UK. And part of the reason this is, is because the Scots, instead of fighting the English forever on everything (laughs) to maintain independence, they redirected their energies, either in the form of coming to America and being very important, very influential in the character, shaping the character of the United States of America at its outset, right before it became an independent country itself, interestingly enough, not coincidentally, I would say, but also when Scots stayed in the UK after the Acts of Union, a lot of them who just made peace with the fact that, okay, well, I guess we're one big happy family now, they went off to English schools and they became, as the author of How the Scots Invented the Modern World would put it, they became better Englishmen than the English They became fantastic explorers, businessmen, inventors, entrepreneurs, statesmen, educators. They became very, very good at all the things that were points of pride for the English. And in that way, they, you might say, got their revenge or achieved a kind of independence, individual independence by standing out. Right by being exceptional, by doing a really, really good job. Now, if Scotland is still interested, and I don't blame them one bit if they are interested, if they are still interested in becoming an independent country again, you know what? I think our ancestors, (laughs) my Scottish ancestors, who were kings and queens of Scotland, and before that, Dalriada, and before that, supposedly, possibly, high kings and queens of Ireland or certain Irish kingdoms, 
because there were several. You know, if, if our ancestors wanted for so long to remain independent and separate and a self-governing people and not be conquered by the English, there would be a kind of justice in restoring Scottish independence. I'm, I am in favor of it. I am in favor of it. Say what you will, but I, I, I think that I think that I would like to see it personally. There's a romantic kind of attachment that I have to the idea that William Wallace and Robert the Bruce's efforts would be uh, rewarded again and honored again with an independent Scotland. But moving on, top U.S. Air Force general makes shocking remarks about unidentified objects shot down by the U.S. military. Some reporting by Ryan Saavedra over at the Daily Wire. U.S. Air Force General Glenn Van Herk, the commander who oversees North American airspace, did not rule out aliens when asked about the unidentified objects shot down over North American airspace in recent days. And this reminds me, of course, as I'm sure it does you as well, of the meme from Ancient Aliens, the History Channel show that I don't even know if it's still running, but it was very popular for several years. Anyways, you know, the guy with the crazy hair who says, I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. L- literally anytime something is mysterious in the archaeological record or in the historical record or in mythology or even in the Bible, the go-to is to say it was aliens. That's, that's what the ancient aliens folks uh, prefer. And it certainly is an exciting <laughs> explanation. Well, so also with some of the craft that are flying over uh, the United States of America and Canada. If we are scrambling jets here the past couple of weeks, and we are, to shoot these things down, because now now that's the kick, right? A lot of Americans got upset about the Chinese spy balloons, which were definitely Chinese, floating with reckless abandon over Billings, Montana, and sensitive nuclear sites and other military installations trying to scope us out ahead of a probable hot war with China in the coming months or years. If all of a sudden we've decided anything that we can't identify in our skies, we're going to go ahead and shoot down out of an excess of caution and due diligence. And all of a sudden we're trying to shoot down some things that have been mysteriously flying in our skies for quite some years What if we actually do shoot down an alien aircraft? I mean, I'm not saying I'm holding my breath. I'm not saying I think that's what they are. But I defer to C.S. Lewis here in some of what he wrote about the possibility of there being life on other planets. Here's what he wrote. How can we, without absurd arrogance, believe ourselves to have been uniquely favored? (laughs) Now, that is to say... Uh, He was speaking with regards to life on planet Earth, it being possible for planet Earth to support and sustain life. His view of the possibility of there being life on other planets out there, aliens, as we would say, was basically that it, it would be absurdly arrogant to insist and demand that God only made us. He only made us and didn't make any other sentient beings on other planets. Now, that's an interesting take. That's an exciting take. Is it true to reality? I guess we'll find out. We'll we'll find out at some point. Now, there's an interesting second instance where Lewis talked about these kinds of things. It was with an interview 
published in 1963 with a certain journalist named Sherwood Elliott Wirt. Briefly, Wirt asked him, do you think there will be widespread travel in space? Here was Lewis's answer, quote, I look forward with horror to contact with the other inhabited planets, if there are such. <laughs> we would only transport to them all of our sin and our acquisitiveness and establish a new colonialism. I can't bear to think of it. But if we on earth were to get right with God, of course, all would be changed. Once we find ourselves spiritually awakened, we can go to outer space and take the good things with us. That is quite a different matter. And that's a, that's a fascinating way to think of it. That's a fascinating take. It's an exciting and fun take. Uh, personally, I would not necessarily go the exact same path and direction. I'm a little bit more mm, negative, shall we say, on how it would go. I tend to assume that if there are aliens out there, uh, odds are high that they are going to find us before we're going to find them. And we will find that they are stronger and more capable. And, uh, and if there's a fight, if there's a fight, we are not going to necessarily win that fight. But then I think of uh, Old, Testament uh, Old Testament allusions to angels and various supernatural beings, or shall we say various beings made by God who are above us as human beings, as man, above us and below God. And they show up and then they're gone. And that we would call them angels and have a whole host of preconceived notions and assumptions. To my way of thinking, if they can show up and physically interact as if they are men, then what do we do with that? If the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6 were fallen angels, then that is to say that they have physical bodies. They are able to interact and have relationships and intercourse, uh, not to be too graphic here, but they are able to make babies with human women. And so there's something, there's something that we don't know. And perhaps it's meant to be that we will never know. But then again, I, as I mentioned in our last episode, I look at what Paul writes about spiritual gifts and when they will cease, when tongues and prophecy and all the rest will cease. It is only when we know, even as we are fully known, it is when that which is perfect is come. And I believe that that perfect which is come in Paul's writings there in Corinthians, I think that perfect which has come is the second coming of Christ. I think that's when we are caught up in the air with him and we are transformed. We are given an incorruptible body just like his and we live forever. We rule and reign if we're in Christ. But again, these are some mysterious things which will be known at some point, at some future date. We will know the answer to these questions and it could be far more exciting. In fact, I dare say, I dare say that the answer to a lot of our questions in the end is going to be far more exciting, far more vibrant, far more robust, if you will, than what we typically suppose. And my proof for this is nothing less than Ephesians 3.20. Our God, Paul writes, is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. That is to say that we 
have very limited imaginations relative the workings of God. And I'll just leave it at that. I'll leave it at that for right now. I'm not saying it's aliens, but it is funny to me. It's funny in so many ways that we have American politicians and military uh, officials, generals and whatnot, who are saying, there's no evidence that it's aliens, right? And so what do <laughs> we all think? It's almost like reverse psychology, and it might be. That might be what it is. Uh, you know, it's almost like as soon as they say, it's not aliens, we're all thinking, it's definitely aliens. It's got to be aliens. You know, it, it, would be, it would be very easy to assume that they know and for it to actually be the fact that they themselves don't know. Maybe these are some very, very advanced aircraft very advanced weapons that the Chinese have developed, that the Russians have developed, that we just don't know about. Maybe it is aliens. Maybe it is. And they've been hanging out, just checking us out, watching from a distance and keeping tabs, almost like, uh, you know, there's there's some kind of a David Attenborough uh, version of an E.T. who is filming documentaries. Maybe that's what they're doing is they're just up there watching and observing <laughs> with a mixture of fascination and horror at our goings on and uh, talking amongst themselves while they eat their, you know, space popcorn or whatever. But moving on, moving on. Inflation surged in January and experts say it's likely to increase again from here. Another increase of 0.5% as we continue to build back better. And let me just say, you know, it's it's an amazing thing. There's a inflation calculator that I look at every now and then here the past year or so. And I'm not going to say how much I make. I'm not going to say how much I have made in the past as a father of eight, sole breadwinner for my family. Uh, it's just tight. It's tight for everybody. And it's definitely tight for us. No matter how much money uh, I make, it seems as though the rate of inflation is in conjunction with the rate of uh, our family size increasing. It, it is uh, a challenge to keep up with. But I'll say this from 2019, when my family moved to Colorado and I moved my family to Colorado to the present, if I punch in at usinflationcalculator.com, what I make right now per hour, the dollar per hour wage that I make right now. And think back to what, you know, what it would have been like if I were making that wage back in 2019. In today's dollars, it's almost $10 an hour difference. So that is to say, if I take my current wage and I imagine what it would be like back in 2019 to be paid this wage then, and then adjust for inflation, it would actually be about $10 more per hour, which is wild. 17% cumulative rate of inflation is just, it's just wild. That's, that's bananas. But that's where we are. That's where we are. Inflation is a major problem. It's a significant problem. And if I look at this notthebee.com article, they've got an embedded tweet from Savvy Trader. U.S. inflation each month since 2013, CPI, month over month, MOM. I look back to 2013, I see 0 0.2, 0.5, negative 0 0.3, negative 0 0.2, 0 0.2, 0 0.2, 0 0.2, you know, lots of very low numbers 
through 2014, 2015, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. And then in 2020, we start to see some weirdness. And all through 2021 and 2022, we, we, we notice a market increase, a market increase since Biden took office, a huge increase in inflation month over month. And it really does hurt. It really hurts families. It hurts young people disproportionately who are just trying to get their start. It hurts young families who are trying to buy a home, pay for groceries, pay utilities costs, get their kids good educations. This is a really, really bad thing for Americans. And it's, it is the government's fault. They keep printing money that they don't have. They're inflating the money supply. They're devaluing the currency. That's the way you've got to think of it. Inflation is just devaluation of the currency relative to the supply of goods and services in the economy. That's why everything is getting more expensive. And when it's not that, when it's not that, this is the result of supply chain issues. And by that, I mean that we have become so dependent on countries like China, which Newsflash, if we're about to be at war with them, it's a really, really bad place to be dependent on them for basic goods, basic materials, basic finished products, because they're cheaper. It's a really bad place to be when we're dependent on China for manufacturing. And so some of the supply chain issues I'm convinced have to do with China claiming that, oh yeah, we've got COVID lockdown, sorry. Sorry, can't play today. And really what it is, is they are throttling us. They're throttling us because we're about to go to war. When it's not that, consider that we've got Pete Buttigieg uh, as the transportation secretary, and he was a diversity pick. He was a diversity hire. His qualification was that he's a gay man. Not that he's super qualified, not that he knows what he's supposed to be doing, but that He checks a box uh, for intersectionality because what Biden wants more than he wants the good of the country is he wants to keep on winning elections. He wants to keep on being important. It's a vanity thing at minimum, but it's also a selfish ambition thing for a lot of Democrats that they want to be in charge. They want to be in control. They can't stand for Republicans to be in in control. They can't stand for themselves to be out of power, even if them being in power causes a lot of pain for a lot of people. They're just that stubborn. They're just that selfish. They're like the prostitute in the story with King Solomon of the two prostitutes who go to him claiming that this baby has been stolen from them or the other woman is trying to steal their baby. When Solomon says, cut the baby in half, you each get half. The prostitute who says, fine, fine by me. And who would rather have half of a dead baby than the other woman get the whole live one? That's the Democrats. That is the Democrats to a T. And it is not all the same. It is not all the same whether we're talking Republicans or Democrats. When you look at the consequences for real men, women, and children, and I'm not talking the super wealthy. The Democrats want to say that Republicans are only caring about the super wealthy. I'm not super wealthy. Okay. I'm not super wealthy. My young family can't afford to buy a house 
because of the Democrat policies, which have strategically undermined and sabotaged our capacity to earn and save and stay out of debt, get out of debt in the first place, but then stay out of debt and buy cash. The Democrats have done that. Some Republicans, but primarily Democrats who love to spend. They're addicted to spending because they're voting themselves largesse. Now, I want you to listen here. This is a super clip, super cut that RNC Research tweeted out about the Biden administration talking about inflation over about 18 months. Take a listen, and it is important, and then we'll say a word or two about it before moving on. I really doubt that we're going to see an inflationary cycle. Most economic analysts believe that it will have a temporary or transitory impact. The faster than expected increase in some of those prices is actually a good sign. The overwhelming consensus is going to pop up a little bit and then go back down. No one's talking about this great, great deal. This is something that will uh, settle down. Transitory. (laughs) Transitory. And the data shows that most of the price increases we've seen are were expected and are expected to be temporary. There's nobody suggesting there's unchecked inflation on the way. It's un- highly unlikely that it's going to be long-term inflation that's going to get out of hand. I don't know anybody who's worried about inflation. Over the last couple of months, uh, we actually saw it trended downward. President Biden's chief of staff, Ron Klain, enthusiastically retweeted an economist who had said in part most of the economic problems we're facing, inflation, supply chains, etc., are high-class problems. What is the grand home plan to increase oil production in America? <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that is hilarious. Well, the number one thing that the president can do is help get COVID under control. Uh, that, we know, is the root cause of inflation. President Biden this afternoon saying he thinks we're at the peak of the crisis right now and that lower prices are on the way. The inflation has everything to do with the supply chain. Make no mistake, inflation is largely the fault of Putin. I'm going to do everything I can to minimize Putin's price hike here at home. If you want to get rid of inflation, the only way to do it is to um, re- undo a lot of the Trump tax cuts. I think ever since you've come into office, things are really looking up. Gas is up, rent is up, food is up, everything. Mm. When even Trevor Noah is getting wise to what's going on and commenting on it, uh, you know, you know, things are obvious. But seriously, though, the Biden administration, the Democrats have been lying to us. They've been lying to us. For the past two years about inflation, they lied, right? They, pl- they promised all this stuff like they always do, and they lied. It's not, it, it's not free. There is no free lunch. It's not free to just print money out of thin air and give it to the people who you think are going to vote for you or who did vote for you or who funded your campaign. That's not going to be without a cost to print that money relative to the supply of goods and services. That is what drives inflation. And if we weren't dependent on Russian oil, or if the EU weren't so dependent on Russian oil and gas, then Putin doing what he's doing in Ukraine, for one, probably wouldn't have happened in the first place. Probably wouldn't have. Because he wouldn't have had the leverage. The EU, in particular Germany, being dependent on Russia for oil and gas, gave Putin leverage. And he rolled the dice. 
he was expecting. They're not going to stop me. They're not going to push back. They're not going to do too much because I'll just shut off the supply of energy or I'll choke it back or I'll raise prices. And that'll teach him. You know, it's it's like having a dog on a leash and you yank that leash. And he was thinking, well, okay, they'll behave. Trump warned about it. To his credit, he's not all wrong, folks. <laughs> you might not like him. He might get on your nerves, but he's not He's not wrong about a great many things. He's right about a great many things. He warned Germany publicly that it was disingenuous and it was unfair and it was uncharitable and it was dangerous for them to make themselves dependent on Russia. And they did it anyway. They wanted America to defend them while at the same time buying energy from Russia. And the Biden administration from day one has been undermining oil and gas here in the U.S. And Democrats, they're lying again. They're still lying. They've been lying and they are still lying. And we need to stop believing them because right now the lie is we're just going to ban internal combustion engine vehicles, the sale of them. The EU is looking at doing that. California has announced that by the year 2035, they're going to do that about 17 other states. I think it is 16, 17 other states in the U.S. They just automatically adopt whatever California's air regulatory board enacts for regulations. And so they're also going to ban the sale, the, the buying and selling of internal combustion engine vehicles, new ones in their states. It's a lie. It's a big lie. And it's not going to get better until we stop believing it and until we start asking some hard questions and until we, and, and, until we start disempowering these people who are making such a mess, have been making such a mess. But I'll tell you who I think we should be empowering on the flip side. On the, the exact opposite end of the spectrum is not just Republicans in general, because there are good Republicans, I would say, and there are bad Republicans. Just like there are some Democrats that I think if we had more of, more, more like, uh, we, we would be better off as a country. I think if we had more Democrats like Joe Manchin, we would be the better for it. But the Democrat Party is increasingly dominated by the radicals, by the AOC and Ilan Omar types, and they don't want Joe Manchin. This is why Kristen Sinema just recently left the Democrat Party and became an independent senator from Arizona. She left because they don't want her kind and they are willing to be very, very mean and nasty and awful and ugly and hateful towards her type of Democrat, towards Joe Manchin's type of Democrat. Tulsi Gabbard also left the Democrat Party, or should we say the Democrat Party left the likes of Tulsi Gabbard and left the likes of Joe Manchin and the likes of Kristen Sinema. If we had more Democrats like that, our whole country would be a lot better off. Not to say that they're all right, because they're still wrong, but they're less wrong, which would be better. It would be better to be less wrong than we are right now. <laughs> that would actually be progress. The real progressive is C.S. And to quote C.S. Lewis again, he's eminently quotable. To quote C.S. Lewis again, the true progressive is the one who turns around when they're going the wrong direction. The Democrats need to turn around. They're going the wrong direction. But on the Republican side of it, there are some good Republicans and there are some not so good Republicans. And if we would have more good Republicans and if it's possible, more good Democrats, if we would have a better country, 
we need more like Ron DeSantis. And and I think that Ron DeSantis, if he doesn't run, I'm going to be disappointed. I hope that he does run, and I hope that he does win from everything I've seen and heard out of Florida. Here's a clip, for instance. I'm going to go ahead and play for you of Governor DeSantis talking about what the state of Florida under his leadership is doing regarding ESG investment. Take a listen. Uh, The subject of today uh, is tackling this issue of ESG. Now, they created this. These things just happen. I don't know where this stuff comes from, but these elites grab it and they really want to impose it on the rest of us. So uh, it's called environment social governance. But basically, I think what it's devolved into is a mechanism to inject political ideology into investment decisions, corporate governance, and really just the the everyday economy. Uh, That is not ultimately something that is going to work out well for us here in Florida or in the United States of America. There's not a real groundswell for this amongst the average uh, citizen. I think this is something where you have uh, a lot of folks, not just in the United States, but internationally. Sometimes they convene in places like Davos, and they have these ideas to try to do this. Now, what are they actually trying to do? Well, one of their big targets is domestic energy production. They do not like us producing more oil and gas. Uh, They do not want us to be energy independent. And that's a bad policy because I think we all know whether we're energy independent or not, not only affects your bottom line in terms of the energy that you have to consume to go to work, uh, to, to live, and to do the basic things we all do, have businesses to operate, uh, but also it affects our national security. When you have to go to foreign countries that are hostile to us to try to get energy, that is not a good place to be in. But what ESG wants to do uh, is they want to put a premium against that type of business. It's also bad for our national security. When you're doing this stuff with ESG, you are increasing the costs that businesses have to comply with here in the United States. Why does that affect our national security? Well, one of the major things facing our country that we need to do is recapture all the supply chains and bring them out of China uh, and get them back here. You had a situation when COVID hit, almost every single thing that people needed was produced in China. Why would you want that uh, when this is a country that is not uh, an ally of the United States? And so that really helps China, ESG. Uh, It gives them an even bigger competitive advantage than they already have with how they don't follow and and, and do uh, fair dealing. So we don't want to go down that road either. Uh, It also violates the fiduciary duty that executives have to the shareholders of the publicly traded companies. If you think about it, your pension money, your retirement money is likely invested in in some of these funds, and those funds should be done to try to produce the best result for you using the available investment options. Well, what ESG says is, no, we're not going to do, even if it would do a better return, we're not going to allow you to invest in certain areas. You're not allowed to invest in oil and gas. You're not allowed to invest um, in in disfavored areas. So they're constricting the ability of people uh, to invest your money, and obviously that means you're going to not do as well as you otherwise could have. And, of course, that's right. Of course. Of course he's right. Now, he goes on to add a few things as far as not just defining the problem, not just complaining about it, but 
what are they going to do about it in Florida? And I quote from WFLA, Channel 8 News, Tampa, quote, Florida, as usual, is leading the charge against this. Today, we're going to build off that success with a number of proposals to get through the legislative session. Now, that's a quote. Here are the bullet points from WFLA's reporting. Put executive policies for the State Board of Administration into statute. Enact protections for Floridians against discrimination by big banks or financial institutions for political, religious, or social beliefs. Prohibit institutions from using social credit scores when making banking and lending decisions. Florida will no longer house at state or local government levels deposits where funds are used for, quote, woke ESG policies, end quote. And also, lastly, quote, make sure ESG is not infecting other decisions in state or local government, end quote, involving contractors, bond issuance, or procurement. Now, I think this is a great idea. I think this is a great way to go uh, for the state of Florida, if that's where he's governor, and that's what he can do. If he can do something about where he's at, well, then start there. And even if he doesn't run for president, this is still a really great thing for the entire country, for the entire United States. It's a great thing that Florida is stepping up to the plate, and I hope that other states will follow suit and follow the example here. I would like very much if the entire United States of America were going this direction, but we'll see. We'll see how this shakes out in the end. Now, let's talk about what the main topic of this podcast episode really actually is, which is The Gray Champion, a short story by Nathaniel Hawthorne from his book, Twice Told Tales. How did I come across this? How did I encounter The Gray Champion? Well, I'm reading a book by Neil Howe and William Strauss titled Generations, subtitled The History of America's Future, 1584 to 2069. And Last year, both my wife and I read a book by them, The Fourth Turning. I read it, and then I said, hey, honey, you got to check this out. This is pretty fascinating stuff, and I want to chat with you about it and, you know, basically not be the only person I know who has read it. So we did. Both she and I have these wonderful little ornaments our friend Caitlin Bergman made for us, and uh, they are filled with books, little tiny miniature books of what we read uh, last year. But in both of ours, I found (laughs) and was reminded when I saw, uh, I found little tiny replicas of the book, The Fourth Turning, An American Prophecy by William Strauss and Neil Howe. But Generations is a longer work. It's a bit more comprehensive, a bit more detailed, talking about the same premise, which is that there's a cyclical pattern a repeating pattern throughout American history of generational types, if you will. Prophet, nomad, hero, artist. Prophet, nomad, hero, artist. One skipping, actually, interestingly enough, of a hero generation, prophet, nomad, artist, then right back to prophet between Woodrow Wilson and Franklin D. Roosevelt. Leave it to two of the most progressive generations 
two of the most progressive politicians in American history to have skipped the hero generation. (laughs) Of course, of course. But then picking back up again, prophet, nomad, hero, artist, prophet, nomad, hero. And it's a question, right? It's, It's a question for our generation, which in my case would be the millennial generation, which fun fact, Neil Howe and William Strauss actually coined the name for. They're the guys who came up with the name for my generation, the millennial generation. But I'm reading this book, Generations, and once I'm finished, I'll tell you more about it and how it was and what I think of it. But for now, for this episode, I want to focus in on a short story that they talk about briefly. And I was fascinated by it. I'd never read it. And so I looked it up. I looked up The Gray Champion because it really sounded like a great story. And in fact, it is. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to read The Gray Champion for you. Twice Told Tales was originally published 1837. So a mere six years after Alexis de Tocqueville's Democracy in America was written, Nathaniel Hawthorne lived 1804 to 1864. And just so you know, that would put him in the same generation as Abraham Lincoln, called the Transcendental Generation. 1792 to 1821 is when that generation was born. They are what Howe and Strauss would call a prophet generation. And of course, they were uh, instrumental in the American Civil War, happening, but also being navigated through. But here's what Nathaniel Hawthorne's short story reads like from the top. There was once a time when New England groaned under the actual pressure of heavier wrongs than those threatened ones which brought on the revolution. James II, the bigoted successor of Charles the Voluptuous, had annulled title charters of all the colonies and sent a harsh and unprincipled soldier to take away our liberties and endanger our religion. The administration of Sir Edmund Andros lacked scarcely a single characteristic of tyranny. A governor and council, holding office from the king, and wholly independent of the country, laws made and taxes levied without concurrence of the people, immediate or by their representatives. The rights of private citizens violated and the titles of all landed property declared void, the voice of complaint stifled by restrictions on the press, and finally, disaffection overawed by the first band of mercenary troops that ever marched on our free soil. For two years, our ancestors were kept in sullen submission by that filial love which had invariably secured their allegiance to the mother country, whether its head chanced to be a parliament protector or popish monarch. Till these evil times, however, such allegiance had been merely nominal, and the colonists had ruled themselves, enjoying far more freedom than is even yet the privilege of the native subjects of Great Britain. At length, a rumor reached our shores that the Prince of Orange had ventured on an enterprise, the success of which would be the triumph of civil and religious rights and the salvation of New England. It was but a doubtful whisper, it might be false, or the attempt might fail, and, in either case, the man that stirred against King James would lose his head. 
Still, the intelligence produced a marked effect. The people smiled mysteriously in the streets and threw bold glances at their oppressors. While, far and wide, there was a subdued and silent agitation, as if the slightest signal would rouse the whole land from its sluggish despondency. Aware of their danger, the rulers resolved to avert it by an imposing display of strength, and perhaps to confirm their despotism by yet harsher measures. One afternoon in April 1689, Sir Edmund Andros and his favorite counselors, being warm with wine, assembled the redcoats of the governor's guard and made their appearance in the streets of Boston. The sun was near setting when the march commenced. The roll of the drum at the unquiet crisis seemed to go through the streets less as the martial music of the soldiers than as a muster call to the inhabitants themselves. A multitude by various avenues assembled in King Street, which was destined to be the scene nearly a century afterwards of another encounter between the troops of Britain and a people struggling against her tyranny. Though more than sixty years had elapsed since the pilgrims came, this crowd of their descendants still showed the strong and somber features of their character, perhaps more strikingly in such a stern emergency than on happier occasions. There was the sober garb, the general severity of mien, the gloomy but undismayed expression, the scriptural forms of speech, and the confidence in heaven's blessing on a righteous cause, which would have marked a band the original Puritans when threatened by some peril of the wilderness. Indeed, it was not yet time for the old spirit to be extinct, since there were men in the street that day who had worshipped there beneath the trees before a house was reared to the god for whom they had become exiles. Old soldiers of the parliament were here too, smiling grimly at the thought that their aged arms might strike another blow against the house of Stuart. Here also were the veterans of King Philip's war, who had burnt villages and slaughtered young and old with pious fierceness, while the godly souls throughout the land were helping them with prayer. Several ministers were scattered among the crowd, which, unlike all other mobs, regarded them with such reverence as if there were sanctity in their very garments. These holy men exerted their influence to quiet the people, but not to disperse them. Meantime, the purpose of the governor, in disturbing the peace of the town, at a period when the slightest commotion might throw the country into a ferment, was almost the universal subject of inquiry, and variously explained. "'Satan will strike his master stroke presently,' cried some because he knoweth that his time is short. All our godly pastors are to be dragged to prison. We shall see them at a Smithfield fire in King Street. Hereupon, the people of each parish gathered closer round their minister, who looked calmly upwards and assumed a more apostolic dignity, as well befitted a candidate for the highest honor of his profession, the crown of martyrdom. It was actually fancied at that period that New England might have a John Rogers of her own to take the place of that worthy in the primer. "'The Pope of Rome has given orders for a new St. Bartholomew,' cried others. "'We are to be massacred, man and male child.' Neither was this rumor wholly discredited, although the wiser class believed the governor's object somewhat less atrocious. His predecessor under the old charter, Bradstreet, a venerable 
companion of the first settlers, was known to be in town. There were grounds for conjecturing that Sir Edmund Andros intended at once to strike terror by a parade of military force and to confound the opposite faction by possessing himself of their chief. "'Stand firm for the old charter governor!' shouted the crowd, seizing upon the idea. "'The good old Governor Bradstreet!' While this cry was at the loudest, the people were surprised by the well-known figure of Governor Bradstreet himself, patriarch of nearly ninety, who appeared on the elevated steps of a door, and, with characteristic mildness, besought them to submit to the constituted authorities. "'My children,' concluded this venerable person, "'do nothing rashly. Cry not aloud, but pray for the welfare of New England, and expect patiently what the Lord will do in this matter.' The event was soon to be decided. All this time, the roll of the drum had been approaching through Cornhill louder and deeper, till, with reverberations from house to house and the regular tramp of martial footsteps, it burst into the street. A double rank of soldiers made their appearance, occupying the whole breadth of the passage with shouldered matchlocks and matches burning so as to present a row of fires in the dusk. Their steady march was like the progress of a machine that would roll irresistibly over everything in its way. Next, moving slowly, with a confused clatter of hooves on the pavement, rode a party of mounted gentlemen, the central figure being Sir Edmund Andros, elderly but erect and soldier-like. Those around him were his favorite counselors and the bitterest foes of New England. At his right hand rode Edward Randolph, our arch-enemy, that blasted wretch, as Cotton Mather calls him, who achieved the downfall of our ancient government, and was followed with a sensible curse through life and to his grave. On the other hand was Bullivant, scattering jests and mockery as he rode along. Dudley came behind, with a downcast look, dreading, as well he might, to meet the indignant gaze of the people who beheld him, their only countryman by birth, among the oppressors of his native land, the captain of a frigate in the harbor, and two or three civil officers under the crown were also there, but the figure which most attracted the public eye and stirred up the deepest feeling was the Episcopal clergyman of King's Chapel, riding haughtily among the magistrates in his priestly vestments, the fitting representative of prelacy and persecution, the union of church and state, and all those abominations which had driven the Puritans to the wilderness. Another guard of soldiers, in double rank, brought up the rear. The whole scene was a picture of the condition of New England, and its moral, the deformity of any government that does not grow out of the nature of things and the character of the people. On one side, the religious multitude, with their sad visages and dark attire, and on the other, the group of despotic rulers, with the high churchmen in the midst, and here and there a crucifix at their bosoms, all magnificently clad, flushed with wine, proud of unjust authority, and scoffing at the universal groan. And the mercenary soldiers, waiting but the word to deluge the street with blood, showed the only means by which obedience could be secured. "'Oh, Lord of hosts!' cried a voice among the crowd. "'Provide a champion for thy people!' This ejaculation was loudly uttered and served as a herald's cry to introduce a remarkable personage. The crowd had rolled back, 
and were now huddled together nearly at the extremity of the street, while the soldiers had advanced no more than a third of its length. The intervening space was empty, a paved solitude between lofty edifices, which threw almost a twilight shadow over it. Suddenly, there was seen the figure of an ancient man, who seemed to have emerged from among the people and was walking by himself along the center of the street to confront the armed band. He wore the old Puritan dress, a dark cloak and steeple-crowned hat in the fashion of at least fifty years before, with a heavy sword upon his thigh, but a staff in his hand to assist the tremulous gait of age. When at some distance from the multitude, the old man turned slowly round, displaying a face of antique majesty rendered doubly venerable by the hoary beard that descended on his breast. He made a gesture at once of encouragement and warning, then turned again and resumed his way. "'Who is this gray patriarch?' asked the young men of their sires. "'Who is this venerable brother?' asked the old men among themselves. But none could make reply. The fathers of the people, those of fourscore years and upwards, were disturbed, deeming it strange that they should forget one of such evident authority whom they must have known in their early days, the associate of Winthrop, and all the old counselors giving laws and making prayers and leading them against the savage. The elderly men ought to have remembered him, too, with locks as gray in their youth as their own were now, and the young how could he have passed so utterly from their memories, that hoary sire, the relic of long-departed times, whose awful benediction had surely been bestowed on their uncovered heads in childhood? Whence did he come? What is his purpose? Who can this old man be? whispered the wondering crowd. Meanwhile, the venerable stranger, staff in hand, was pursuing his solitary walk along the center of the street. As he drew near the advancing soldiers, and as the roll of their drum came full upon his ear, the old man raised himself to a loftier mien, while the decrepitude of age seemed to fall from his shoulders, leaving him in gray but unbroken dignity. Now he marched onward with a warrior's step, keeping time to the military music. Thus the aged form advanced on one side, and the whole parade of soldiers and magistrates on the other, till, when scarcely twenty yards remained between, the old man grasped his staff by the middle and held it before him like a leader's truncheon. "'Stand!' cried he. The eye, the face, and attitude of command, the solemn yet warlike peal of that voice, fit either to rule a host in the battlefield or be raised to God in prayer— were irresistible. At the old man's word and outstretched arm, the roll of the drum was hushed at once, and the advancing line stood still. A tremulous enthusiasm seized upon the multitude, that stately form combining the leader and the saint, so gray, so dimly seen, in such an ancient garb, could only belong to some old champion of the righteous cause, whom the oppressor's drum had summoned from his grave." They raised a shout of awe and exultation, and looked for the deliverance of New England. The governor and the gentlemen of his party, perceiving themselves brought to an unexpected stand, rode hastily forward, as if they would have pressed their snorting and affrighted horses right against the hoary apparition. He, however, blenched not a step, but glancing his severe eye round the group, 
which half encompassed him, at last bent it sternly on Sir Edmund Andros. One would have thought that the dark old man was chief ruler there, and that the governor and council, with soldiers at their back, representing the whole power and authority of the crown, had no alternative but obedience. "'What does this old fellow here?' cried Edward Randolph, fiercely. "'On, Sir Edmund! Bid the soldiers forward, and give the daughter the same choice that you give all his countrymen, to stand aside or be trampled on!' "'Nay, nay!' "'Let us show respect to the old grandsire,' said Bullivant, laughing. "'See you not? He is some old round-headed dignitary "'who hath lain asleep these thirty years "'and knows nothing of the change of times. "'Doubtless he thinks to put us down "'with a proclamation in old Noel's name.' "'Are you mad, old man?' demanded Sir Edmund Andros, "'in loud and harsh tones. "'How dare you stay the march of King James's governor? "'I have stayed the march of a king himself ere now.' replied the grey figure, with stern composure. I am here, Sir Governor, because the cry of an oppressed people hath disturbed me in my secret place, and beseeching this favour earnestly of the Lord, it was vouchsafed me to appear once again on earth, in the good old cause of his saints. And what speak ye of James? There is no longer a popish tyrant on the throne of England, and by to-morrow noon his name shall be a byword in this very street, where ye would make it a word of terror. Back, thou that wast a governor, back! With this night thy power is ended. Tomorrow the prison! Back! Lest I foretell the scaffold. The people had been drawing nearer and nearer, and drinking in the words of their champion, who spoke in accents long disused, like one unaccustomed to converse, except with the dead of many years ago. But his voice stirred their souls, they confronted the soldiers, not wholly without arms, and ready to convert the very stones of the street into deadly weapons. Sir Edmund Andros looked at the old man. Then he cast his hard and cruel eye over the multitude, and beheld them burning with that lurid wrath so difficult to kindle or to quench, and again he fixed his gaze on the aged form which stood obscurely in an open space, where neither friend nor foe had thrust himself what were his thoughts he uttered no word which might discover but whether the oppressor were overawed by the great champion's look or perceived his peril in the threatening attitude of the people it is certain that he gave back and ordered his soldiers to commence a slow and guarded retreat before another sunset the governor and all that rode so proudly with him were prisoners and long ere it was known that james had abdicated king william was proclaimed throughout England. But where was the great champion? Some reported that when the troops had gone from King Street and the people were thronging tumultuously in their rear, Bradstreet, the aged governor, was seen to embrace a form more aged than his own. Others soberly affirmed that while they marveled at the venerable grandeur of his aspect, the old man had faded from their eyes, melting slowly into the hues of twilight, till, where he stood, there was an empty space. But all agreed that the hoary shape was gone. The men of that generation watched for his reappearance in sunshine and in twilight, but never saw him more, nor knew when his funeral passed, nor where his gravestone was. And who was the great champion? Perhaps his name might be found in the records of that stern court of justice, 
which passed a sentence too mighty for the age, but glorious in all after times, for its humbling lesson to the monarch and its high example to the subject. I have heard that whenever the descendants of the Puritans are to show the spirit of their sires, the old man appears again. When eighty years had passed, he walked once more in King Street. Five years later, in the twilight of an April morning, he stood on the green beside the meeting-house at Lexington, where now the obelisk of granite with a slab of slate inlaid commemorates the first fallen of the revolution. And when our fathers were toiling at the breastwork on Bunker's Hill, all through that night the old warrior walked his rounds. Long, long may it be, ere he comes again. His hour is one of darkness and adversity and peril. But should domestic tyranny oppress us, or the invaders' step pollute our soil, still may the great champion come, for he is the type of New England's hereditary spirit, and his shadowy march on the eve of danger must ever be the pledge that New England's sons will vindicate their ancestry. The end. Okay, so, there's the story by Nathaniel Hawthorne, same author who wrote The Scarlet Letter, by the way, which you're probably more familiar with. Nothing has ever been done, so far as I know, so far as I was able to research, to adapt The Great Champion for the big screen. If you find something, please send it to me. I would love to watch it. I think it would make a great comic book, at least. It's very stirring, great imagery, very heroic. But a little bit about some of the figures who are referenced here. First of all, James II of England is the king in question at this time. James Seventh and Second, I should say. He was king of England and king of Ireland and king of Scotland. James the Seventh of Scotland, James Second of England and Ireland. And his rule which came to an end in the Glorious Revolution of 1688, his rule marked the last Roman Catholic kingship of England, Scotland, and Ireland. He is, according to Wikipedia, remembered primarily for conflicts over religious tolerance, but also was involved in struggles over the principles of absolutism and the divine right of kings, which Charles II, his older brother, and also his father, Charles I and grandfather, King James I and VI, held to. Now, there's some interesting things. There, there, there are some really interesting things that we have to at least take a moment to look at and think about here. Again, according to Wikipedia, the first paragraph about James Seventh and Second, James II of England, which would be how he's referenced in The Great Champion, the last sentence of the first paragraph in Wikipedia's entry on him says, His deposition ended a century of political and civil strife in England by confirming the primacy of the English parliament over the crown. This is a big deal, right? This is a big deal in the history of not just the United Kingdom, but also of the colonies and also of what would eventually become the United States of America. It's a big, big deal that these things were handled the way that they were in England. Now, a word or two about James, the seventh and second. 
He succeeded to the thrones of England, Ireland, and Scotland following the death of his brother with widespread support in all three countries, largely because the principles of eligibility based on divine right and birth were widely accepted. Tolerance of his personal Catholicism did not extend to tolerance of Catholicism in general, and the English and Scottish parliaments refused to pass his measures. So he basically was being stonewalled by parliament, right? That's that's what you should understand. He was basically being stonewalled by parliament in England and in Scotland. When James attempted to impose them by decree, this was met with opposition. Some academics have, however, argued that it was a political principle rather than a religious one that ultimately led to his removal. I would say it doesn't have to be either. It can be both and all at the same time, because what we need to understand is the theology of the persons and parties in question here informed their politics. Their theology informed their politics, or that is to say that their doctrine with regards to church polity informed their political doctrine. They did not see these as totally disparate, totally separate things. And I would argue we shouldn't either, by the way. But it's interesting. His brother, his older brother, was deposed in 1688 by the Glorious Revolution. His older brother, being Charles II, was the eldest surviving child of Charles I and Henrietta Maria of France. Charles I was executed, according to his Wikipedia entry, uh, executed at Whitehall on 30th January 1649 at the climax of the English Civil War. The Parliament of Scotland proclaimed Charles II king on 5th February 1649, but England entered the period known as the English Interregnum, or the English Commonwealth, and the country was a de facto republic led by Oliver Cromwell. More on Cromwell here in just a moment, but first, let's go back. Who was Charles I? Charles I, there's an interesting little item here on Royal Museum's Greenwich UK, rmg.co.uk. Why was King Charles first executed? And you can't see it, but I can. A picture, a portrait of Charles I in the attire of that day and age with a very fancy mustache and goatee, long hair, and an earring, interestingly enough. Charles I, according to this entry, this page at Royal Museums Greenwich, succeeded his father, James I, in 1625 as King of England and Scotland. During Charles' reign, his actions frustrated his parliament and resulted in the wars of the English Civil War, eventually leading to his execution in 1649. Charles married the Catholic Henrietta Maria in the first year of his reign. This offended many English Protestants. Charles believed that the heads of the church should be treated with deference. This was a Catholic idea and something that the Puritans did not like. He dissolved Parliament when faced with opposition, effectively ruling alone on a number of occasions. In his first four years of ruling, he dissolved Parliament three times, once for 11 years. He would only reassemble Parliament to raise funds when he ran out of money because of expensive foreign wars. He lost popular support over public welfare issues such as the imposition of drainage schemes in the Fens. This affected thousands of people. 
Both his father, James I, and Charles himself believed in the divine right of kings. This meant that they thought that as king, they were above the law and had been chosen by God. Now, if you take note of the years in which Charles I was king, 1625 to 1649. Here I will give you a tie-in with a book that I am slowly but surely reading, little by little, by a certain Samuel Rutherford, who was a Scottish Presbyterian minister. Lex Rex is Latin. That's the title of the book, but it's Latin for the law is king. And this statement in even just the title of the book, this statement was a direct contradiction to what this line of kings believed. They believed that the king was law. And Samuel Rutherford, Scottish Presbyterian minister, says, no, 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 the king is not the law. The law is king. The law is king. So the king has to be under the law of God. And insofar as the nation has laws, the king cannot violate the laws of the nation either and just unilaterally, arbitrarily deprive the men of his country or the women of his country or the children of his country of their rights. If he does so, then God will remove him from his position of authority because he has behaved and acted in a lawless way. This was a major turning point in the development of Protestant Christian political philosophy. And without this, we would not have the United States of America. It's safe to say without these events and books like Lex Rex, which then were adapted by men like Thomas Paine and secularized, unfortunately, without these works, we would not have the United States of America. And so in order to understand the form of government that we have, you have to delve into the history of the succession debates and the debates about what authority does the king have? Where does it come from? What do you do if he abuses his power, his authority? These are very, very important things, very important facts that are entirely relevant to our modern day issues and problems. Interesting, too, that we have a Roman Catholic in the White House right now and are running into some similar problems, I would say. Maybe not drainage, but uh, of a sort, uh, if you will, metaphorically, yes, of drainage even. Now, again, another word about these monarchs of England, Ireland, and Scotland. James sixth and first, father of... Charles I. If you remember here uh, four episodes ago, episode 555, I talked about the Queen James Bible, the Queen James Version, which is a perversion of the King James Version, the KJV. James sixth and first is that King James that the KJV is named after. That is to say, Charles I's father, Charles II's and James Sixth and II's grandfather is widely believed to have been uh, bisexual. And to such an extent was this a poorly kept secret at his court 
that his nickname at court was Queen James. He was flamboyantly attentive to some of the men in his court. And it was found out years later, after he was no longer king, that there was a secret passageway between his bedroom and the bedroom of one of the other men in his court that he was suspected to have had uh, an inappropriate relationship with. But that is to say, James sixth and first was a bisexual. So he was married to a woman and he had children. And then those sons of his that I've mentioned to you became kings after him. But I think it's not for no reason that he believed he was the law. As king, he was the law. And so that ended up not just reflecting in how he ruled over the people and how he dispensed with parliament, etc., but it also translated into his private life and how he related behind the scenes. It also reflected in how his descendants behaved and how they acted towards parliament. It was lawlessness. They did not fear God. And so they were removed from their positions of authority. They were removed. And I would say it was good that they were removed if they were tyrants, if they were despots, if they were behaving in a lawless way, if they were abusing their power, both in a quiet, private, personal way and also publicly trampling on the rights of those under their rule. Now, who is this Oliver Cromwell? He's a fairly fascinating character, actually. For one, he descends from a junior branch of the Cromwell family, distantly related, as in his great-great-granduncle was Thomas Cromwell, chief minister to King Henry VIII. Now, if you'll remember, King Henry VIII is the one who is so famous for getting married again and again and again and again, and not sticking to one woman. He was not a one-woman man, and he kept on finding fault with his wives and finding reasons to get rid of them, starting with the first wife who had formerly been married to his brother who died at the age of 15, interestingly enough, 20 weeks into his marriage with Catherine, which is to say Arthur died at 15 and was married at 15. Go figure. And so then Henry VIII marries his brother's widow, and they don't have sons. And he's upset about that and starts looking for a divorce, but he's not being given one. It's it's complicated and it's political, but it, he's not being given a divorce. And that is what leads to England breaking away from the Catholic Church, ultimately, because Henry VIII wants a divorce and is not getting one. And Thomas Cromwell, as a high-up minister <laughs> to Henry VIII, is instrumental in trying to jockey and maneuver and get support for what Henry VIII wants, and at the same time is an evangelical, and at the same time is quietly trying to use his power to promote evangelical Protestant Christianity in England. That ends up getting him into trouble. Plus, also, Henry VIII was a bit turbulent, shall we say, and it costs Thomas Cromwell dearly. And surely, 
Surely, if we know about this, it was a subject of conversation in the upbringing of Oliver Cromwell. And when it comes time for him to be a politician, he also ends up being a soldier. And his Wikipedia entry tells me that he was born 25th April 1599, died 3rd September 1658, widely regarded as one of the most important statesmen in English history. He came to prominence during the 1639 to 1653 Wars of the Three Kingdoms, first as a senior commander in the parliamentarian army and then as a politician, a leading advocate of the execution of Charles I in January 1649, which led to the establishment of the Protectorate. He ruled as Lord Protector from December 1653 until his death in September 1658. Cromwell nevertheless remained a deeply controversial figure in both Britain and Ireland due to his use of military force to first acquire, then retain political power and the brutality of his 1649 Irish campaign. Is he a hero? Is he a villain? I'm not going to get into that. I bring him up not to venerate him, nor either to vilify him, but I bring him up because, again, this is part of our history as Americans that Nathaniel Hawthorne writes this story, the great champion, about nearly a hundred years prior to the War for Independence, colonials at risk of being trampled on by British soldiers on behalf of James II of England, grandson of James I, King James, who was a bisexual, son of Charles II, who was executed like his older brother was executed. James II exiled to France. All of the above, this family, right? This family in power, acting, believing, writing, stating outright, not just we enforce the laws, we write the laws, we interpret the laws. No, no, we are above the law, literally. That, that's what their doctrine was. That was their political doctrine. We are above the law. We are the law. And what put a stop to it was a distinctly Protestant and, yes, even Puritan conviction that, no, the law is king and you are lawless and we cannot abide by this. So there's this brief reference in The Great Champion by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It's a scoffing, passing reference when the British soldiers are threatening the great champion, telling him to get out of the way. They make fun of him with a reference to Old Knoll. Old Knoll is one of the nicknames that Oliver Cromwell went by and was known by. And the significance of that is that Nathaniel Hawthorne, contemporary of Abraham Lincoln, dying one year before the conclusion of the American Civil War, Nathaniel Hawthorne, when telling a significant, meaningful short story about the founding or the birth of the United States of America in the first place, makes a quiet but unmistakable nod to Oliver Cromwell, and not for no reason. So I bring this up because... For Nathaniel Hawthorne to remember, 
back to 1688, 1689, in the early 1800s, on the verge of the American Civil War, which will happen at the end of his life, should get our attention. And it is worthy of our study as Americans. We should pay attention to these things and we should ponder their significance for our day. He was talking about the precursor, essentially, in the colonies to the War for Independence, basically saying that the War for Independence was a continuation of what Oliver Cromwell and other Puritans in the UK, in Great Britain, had done in throwing off lawless kings, lawless monarchs. The American Revolution, as some call it, or the American War for Independence, as Edmund Burke would say, was very self-consciously informed by the work of men like Samuel Rutherford, very much informed by the example of men like Oliver Cromwell. And that means the good example that they set when they set good examples. That means the bad example that they set when they set bad examples. And I think this is also part of why we can admire the founding generation, because they put things in place to provide accountability and checks and balances, not just between three branches of government, but also between various levels of government and also between the government and the people themselves. They put these things in place because they, in hindsight, could recognize that both these kings and rulers by any other title or name can be tempted to be corrupt. And when they are tempted to be corrupt, there need to be safeguards in place by which they can be checked before a whole lot of people get hurt. Now, my question to you would be, in our present circumstance, what are the functional equivalents of each one of these members of the cast of characters? Who are the functional equivalents? If this were the same song, just a different verse, which I contend that it is, who's who now? Who are the protagonists? Who are the antagonists? And where do we find ourselves? <laughs> what part are we going to play? In the grand scheme of things, the Puritans were committed. They, they were committed to the pursuit of personal holiness and the holiness of their expression of Christian life and faith, and not just stowing it because somebody with a big title and fancy robes told them that's enough out of you. That's pretty remarkable. That's pretty remarkable. They didn't see life as something where you just compartmentalize and then wall off certain areas or certain sectors. And you say, God's word's not going to inform my engagement there. They didn't approach life that way. They didn't approach their personal private lives that way. They didn't approach their public life that way. And we could learn a thing or two from the Puritans. We really could. Now, when I say that, I mean the good, the bad, and the ugly. But that is to say, there are good things to learn from their example, not only bad things. They get a bad rap, and sometimes they behaved badly, and we should not emulate them when they behaved badly or when they got a little full of themselves or a little self-righteous, perhaps, possibly, a little carried away in their zeal. We shouldn't follow them into error when they were in error. But when they were right, I think that 
we would do well to imitate the ways that they were right or to learn from the way that they thought through things. Why reinvent the wheel? Why try and start fresh from the very, very beginning? Heaven knows the people who are corrupt are not doing that. They're not starting from scratch. But where did they get their ideas? That's the big question. Did they get their ideas? Did they really truly get their ideas from Thomas Paine and Samuel Rutherford before him? Did they really truly get their ideas from the likes of Edmund Burke? Or do they have more in common with King James I? Do they have more in common with King Charles I, King Charles II, King James II? (laughs) These are important questions. These are very important questions. I find it interesting, by the way, not that the name Charles is a bad name per se. I mean, Charlemagne was a complicated figure, but nevertheless, I find it interesting that we've got another King Charles on the throne in the UK, King Charles III. The first two King Charleses were not great guys. I wouldn't have named my son Charles. I used to have a friend back in the day when I was a kid named Charlie. But you'll note, I haven't named any of my sons Charles. <laughs> I hope my old friend Charlie is doing well, but I wouldn't name any of my kids Charlie, or Charles for that matter. And the reason is this. It's very, very simple. If we would do well, there has to be a due reverence for God. And it needs to not be hypocritical, and it needs to not be false, and it needs to not be pageantry and affectation. And it needs to not be LARPing, by the way. Not a fancy dress party where we just pretend like Halloween that we're somebody else. No, no, no. What I mean is realize that these were real people just like you and me. And if they talked a little funny or if they acted a little bit weird sometimes compared to what we think is normative now, look harder, look closer. And what you might just find is that actually everything that was going on back then is still going on now, but what are we going to do about it? What's going to win the day? I should like very much to talk a bit about the draining of the fens, for instance. We don't have time in this episode, but maybe coming up soon. Maybe, Maybe we can delve into that. That would be great. But I'll bet, I will bet good money... adjusted for inflation, of course, that the majority of us have no idea what the draining of the fens is and why that was a big deal, why why that was a contributing factor in the removal of King Charles I. I'll bet you good money. The majority of us have no idea that this is even a thing to learn from. And yet, what if, right? What if I told you that previous generations of our ancestors have had similar problems to what we do now. Not all the same problems, not all the same problems in their particulars, but at root. Insofar as these are human nature problems and human relationship problems and human organization problems and theological as much as philosophical and political problems. What if I told you that previous generations of our ancestors have had these exact same problems And that we might come up with some ideas for what to do about our problems today if we studied what our ancestors did about their problems. What if if I told you that? And what if, furthermore, we did do that study and then we came up with some good ideas 
And we were able to actually engage with the problems of our day effectively, happily, or at least to happy ends. It does not seem as though a whole lot of happy news is being generated right now. But we don't need to be passive about that and just wait, wait until it turns around or until it all completely implodes. The longer we wait, the higher the cost is. And there's no getting away from, one, the sunk cost of what's already been lost. Also, two, the fact that there will be a cost to correcting these problems, these troubles in our day. Some food for thought in any event. That's all the time I've got for this episode, though. I got to run. I really do. It's a snowy day outside here in Greeley, Colorado. And I was expecting to have to go to the office today. I got a text while I was recording here saying that we're not going to go into the office. We're just going to have a Teams call, a remote conference call for the meeting that we had planned to kick off a new project for me. So that's nice. That's some happy news. But all the same, I should get going, get myself another cup of coffee. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.